let's take it back to the drawing board. The animation drawing board, that is. On our show, we love to say, look to the animation department for the future of Star Wars. And this year for our summer series, we are so excited to be taking a deep dive underneath that infamous cowboy hat and talking all about the Lucasfilm animation department. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to our 2020 summer series. Yay! It's here. It's finally here, and we're talking (laughs) all about animation. I bet you guys guessed it. This was probably the most requested one that we got last year when we teased our extremely random, nobody guessed it at all, Yoda series last year. And I think everyone expected this. And this is something that we wanted to do for a long time. We just had to figure out how we were going to do it and what angle we were going to take. So that is this. (laughs) It is going to be a three-episode series that spans basically a timeline of Star Wars and animation together. And we Mm -hmm. have researched it a lot. We've pulled from a lot of random sources. (laughs) And we're really excited to dive in. Yeah, I think, you know, the the Yoda series was definitely out of left field, whereas this one is incredibly on brand. Uh, What I think is funny, though, is that the Yoda series, we did not knowing about Baby Yoda, right? And then we had already decided to do this animation series before the Bad Batch announcement was made which I think is, you know, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly think the Baby Yoda thing is a little funnier, but okay, well, I, <laughs> mean, I think we yeah. all knew that animation was going to continue, I guess, to an extent uh, after Resistance and the Clone Wars and everything. It was just like, how? So it's fun that we have that recently announced in our back pocket to kind of sort of visualize where things are going to go with the future of Star Wars animation and Disney Plus, because that seems to be the home for Star Wars animation in the future. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, I'm excited for this series. I think we're, like we said, we're doing three episodes of discussing the very beginning of animation in Star Wars all the way through the present. Each episode, I feel like, is going to kind of look a little different depending on what we're talking about, but it is going to follow the timeline of time more or less and like this episode we're pretty much going to be going through the very beginning of animation in star wars starting with (laughs) the star wars holiday special Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some of that development and then going all the way through the first run of the clone wars series which is the biggest stretch of time that we'll be reviewing but i also think that We've very recently discussed the Clone Wars, obviously, so we wanted to kind of put that in this episode as well um, and also talk about the beginning of animation with Star Wars. And I I hope you guys will find it interesting. I, I, I'm nervous about this series because there is no way we can, like we say for everything, there's no way we can cover everything that's ever gone on. I'm like, am I going to miss something so important? <laughs> Yes, we are. We're going to. <laughs> we definitely are. And you know, like with most things, this is this is this is like big picture of what's been happening or what has happened with Star Wars animation. 
but on some things we'll be going closer in. You know, I feel like this episode is this big picture of like the timeline of things that were happening and in developments and kind of interesting tidbits that you and I haven't necessarily come across before when we were doing research, whereas our next episode is probably going to be a little bit more specific. Like we'll be talking about Rebels in the next episode, so that's probably going to be closer to the actual quote-unquote text of Rebels, whereas this one is more big picture. You know, it's just, it's going to ebb and flow a little differently, and I hope that's okay with all of you guys, and that it's not just like a, in 1978 we did this, and then in 1979 (laughs) this happened, and then we were quiet for about 20 years, (laughs) and then we picked back up in 2002, and (laughs) so on and so forth. So I hope you guys are excited. I'm excited. This is, this is our brand. (laughs) It honestly is. And it's funny because we are just fans, right? We're just fans of Star Wars animation. We've always been fans of it. And this, like Caitlin mentioned, is a way for us to sort of trace the interesting tidbits that we didn't know before. And just like our George Lucas series, which happened two years ago now, I honestly think this will take a similar trajectory towards that, where we're trying to kind of parse out certain themes that come out of this certain business practice or where Star Wars was at this time, what did it need, what did it learn, all these certain things, and how the mission of Star Wars is really kind of woven in with animation as a medium, not necessarily a genre, in Star Wars. And I say that we're just fans just because Caitlin and I aren't animation historians. (laughs) We, of course, I feel like we always have to caveat this as, yes, we're going to miss things, like we mentioned, and yes, we're probably going to get some things wrong, but Everything that we've sourced has been from official texts, uh, journalistic articles with with Lucasfilm representatives speaking, um, and different <laughs> blogs, I suppose. I think we'll always denote when it's a blog or some random website or something like that versus a book. But most of the stuff and the quotes that we have are really from books and from like all different years, really. <laughs> we've been kind of taking different books down from our, our subsequent libraries, right? And from the going shelf. through them from the shelf, you know, love the shelf. And the yes, shelf. I'm pulling things off the shelf for this <laughs> and kind of zeroing in on that one paragraph about the Clone Wars movie and all these <laughs> things, uh, trying to parse together some sort of timeline. And honestly, I just don't really think that an in depth timeline about Lucasfilm animation has really been done by the fans. Like it is super in depth. I think we've we've come across some blog posts and things, but. I hope Caitlin and I, I, our hope really is to kind of expand upon that and provide some some core concepts and core uh, television shows and animated projects that happened in these years and why and what George Lucas was going for and what the future of that is and with Dave Filoni at the helm and all these things, right? I think that we, and often we always talk about Dave Filoni even, and Dave wasn't even really that involved <laughs> until a certain period of time. And other people were at the helm also that don't necessarily get mentioned in the conversation. And I hope to, we hope to bring that up as well. So all these different things are kind of circulating in our head. And we're really excited to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I completely echo that. I think at the end of the day, we hope that this is a bit of a synthesis of everything that has happened in Star Wars that we at least get to mention it <laughs> for the for uh, a lot of what's happened. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of, you know, this is what was happening for Rebels timeline and this is what happened with the Star Wars holiday special, but to kind of like put it all together and 
track it through time, I think will be really interesting. And and even just looking at the, what we have, some of the research that we've done for this episode, I think it's kind of cool looking at some of these little threads that have been present in how George, you know, hired certain people and, and how that's kind of carried through even to the present with something like resistance and rebels and like the new disney era uh projects with you know with dave running it now so i think um everyone's probably like this is just gonna be the dave filoni show and (laughs) (laughs) it might be a little bit but (laughs) 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 like we'll we'll definitely be talking about it (laughs) but uh like charlotte said i hope that we can talk about some other aspects and, and other people that are involved in these stories too because this is neither George Lucas didn't do all this. Dave Filoni didn't do all this. They There are hundreds of other people involved. But, of course, we we will probably be talking about them a lot. So. <laughs> it's who we are. It's just who we are as people. It's We're who just we are. It. It, it's, yeah, it's who we are. And they're in charge, too. So yeah. the, the successes and failures ultimately do come back to them. So anyway, that's a really long prologue, a really long intro. So are we ready to start diving in? Yes. Okay. So in part one, we're going to be doing an animation department overview in the t- of the timeline in the early days. And in part two, we're going to be talking about Clone Wars 2D series, the development of the Lucasfilm animation department, as well as the Clone Wars movie. And then in part three, we're going to be talking about the Clone Wars. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to part one, where we are talking all about the early days of the animation. We can't say animation department, but mm-hmm. animated things coming out of Lucasfilm <laughs> and Star Wars uh, in really in the 70s and 80s. I think it's funny because I often don't remember that Ewoks and droids exist, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> I know Blast Points just like turned off this episode. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, I can't listen anymore. (laughs) But I I really, when I think of the animation department and like animation projects in Star Wars, my head is always kind of, my first memory is Clone Wars 2D series. And that's where my, I guess, personal memory and knowledge starts with it, even though this has been a part of Star Wars from the very beginning, which all of you listening are like... Duh. (laughs) You know, of course, we had the Star Wars Holiday Special, which came out in 1978, which was the very first thing, which was part live action and part animation. It's when they introduced Boba Fett. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. It was a lot. (laughs) It's pretty wacky. It's wacky. Yeah, it's, it's wacky. It is infamous. It has quite the legacy. And George Lucas has said on multiple occasions that he has spent more time talking about it than he did making it, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but what what I think is interesting about this time period is that when and the biggest resource we kind of used for this section 
was the Star Wars Archives book from Paul Duncan because he talks to a lot of different people that were involved in the creation of the Star Wars Holiday Special, droids and Ewoks, and kind of their experience in these early days of doing animated projects for Star Wars. And I think that you really see a lot of what was important to George that he has talked about on his films like live action films with the original trilogy back then were also very important to him when it came to created creating animated stories. And I think that was really emphasized in the technology that he was pushing for in these shows, as well as the types of people that he was hiring for them too. Yeah, I just think that when you look at this period of time and you think about George Lucas, as we have kind of expanded upon in our previous series by George, just about George Lucas's life and his creations and everything such as, right? I think that... (laughs) I like how you started, like, when you look at George's life, or no, (laughs) no, you you said, when you look at George's body of work, and I'm like, (laughs) that's literally all we do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think particularly in this time period of the 70s and early 80s, things were really ripe for creation with George. And he was really gearing up to kind of turn Hollywood on its head. And the company that he even started with with Francis Ford Coppola is called American Zoetrope. Things didn't really go super well for American Zoetrope. I don't think that you can look upon Lucasfilm without understanding that Lucasfilm probably wouldn't exist without George starting his own studio with Francis Ford Coppola with American Zoetrope. So one came first and then the other. And I think that if you want to pinpoint George's kind of sensibilities about expanding the creative world of storytelling, I think it's really interesting that that company, one of his first companies, you know, the this, this studio was called American Zoetrope. And the Zoetrope itself was one of the first original pieces of an animated cell. You can't look at the history of animation without understanding that that was a zoetrope. If you look it up, it's hard to describe, right? But it's it's a round thing <laughs> that on the outside has um, has a bunch of different little animated cells. And if you spin it, it you can see them all t- running together. And it kind of forms a, a very short little picture. But it, it is it the moves. first. Yeah, it moves. It's one of the first pieces of animation. And I think that... George really kind of understood this idea of animation, not necessarily a genre, but a medium for storytelling. And I think that was present from the very beginning, something that he, you know, I think goes straight into wanting to explore technology when it comes to special effects and everything. So when you think about how he wants to expand Star Wars as a storytelling realm, of course, part of that is going to be animation. And I, I look upon the Star Wars holiday special Boba Fett part. It's probably my favorite part of the holiday special. I, I know that that's kind of controversial because a lot of people say that the animation is not great. And I think that, yeah, the human animation's not great. <laughs> I would say that Luke looks particularly bad. And I guess that's just an opinion, but it's just not very attractive to look at. But I love the colors. And I think that there's something there about being... Uh, potentially attractive for kids to see this colorful new realm that's so otherworldly that just can't possibly be created through a camera lens. Mm -hmm. And I 
I look upon that Boba Fett intro. I think it's so fun. It's probably, I'm not a big Boba Fett fan. We all know this, but I love the pink colors. I love the dinosaurs. I love the, the mythosaur. <laughs> and I think it's so great. I Every time there is a, an artist rendering of something that is like a pink Boba Fett, which I know is, you know, the original action figure or whatever, I look upon that and I'm like, ah, it's so cool. I love the design because it's such a striking design. And I... I don't know. I I think that this it's fun to consider that all of everything that we love about Star Wars animation really started with this exploratory area here the Star Wars uh Star Wars Holiday Special which George doesn't love, but it's <laughs> which is also fun because I think that of anything probably the most impactful thing that came from it is this 9 minute cartoon (laughs) yeah i i gotta also admit that whenever i think about the the art style of the holiday special animated section i always think of the schoolhouse rock style too (laughs) it's kind of the same yeah i can't explain it like they they use very different color palettes but for some reason there's a link there in my head (laughs) between how those two series look and i can't I can't explain it, but I just needed to put that out there. So there you go. Yeah. Well, the art style of this is the same. It's the same company. It's the same Canadian studio that did droids and Ewoks as well. So there's a lot of similarities there that I think defined the the Star Wars animation period in the 80s and I guess 78 until droids and Ewoks ended in what's the year? 86. Okay, so let's look at the actual company that did that start that started with the holiday special because I actually think this is the most interesting and what I I didn't really know about the holiday special and the the company which was the Canadian studio called Nelvana Limited. And I've heard their name before. Obviously, their their name has been used in a couple different Easter eggs in Star mm-hmm. Wars too in you know, quote unquote, recent time, but the the 21st century, I guess. Um, but what I didn't know is that they had really only been in business for about seven years when George hired them for the Star Wars holiday special, which can you imagine? Like, this is after the biggest blockbuster in the world. And he hires this incredibly young studio to do it. And we came across this article, which I think was on StarWars.com. It was. Um, where there was an interview with John Celestri, which who was an, an, an who was or is, he is an animator found out for Nelvana. It's still in business. But he said this about working on the Star Wars holiday special. He said, quote, animation in the United States at the time was very commercial, John Celestia explains. But in Canada, it was still informed by a European sensibility, a sense of art and design. A Cosmic Christmas, which was one of uh, Nelvana's first productions, did not look anything like what was coming out of California at the time. A Cosmic Christmas dealt with characters from outer space seeking answers. The show was complete before Star Wars had been released. It showed that Nelvana and George Lucas were on the same page intuitively. It was a traditional theme in a non-traditional manner, and I think that has something to do with convincing Lucas to go with our studio. And this is the thing that I think is so interesting about choosing Nelvana that just goes 
kind of so perfectly with who George Lucas is, <laughs> and especially who he was at this time. I think if you're into Star Wars, you know how tumultuous it was to get Star Wars made <laughs> mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, and that George fought tooth and nail and basically worked to the bone in order to get those films made. And him, the, the whole time that he was making Star Wars, A New Hope, and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, he was always making sure that he was going to be able to make future projects on his own terms. And he did that with Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. It was like if you're – he made sure for as hard as it was to get a studio to to even produce Star Wars, <laughs> he made sure that when they agreed to produce Star Wars that they were going to make the next one too. Mm-hmm. And to have that kind of tenacity, I think back then, you know, a brand new um, filmmaker who – you know, he was – I can't remember the exact timeline, but, you know, THX 1138 was very avant-garde. There's a complete 180 with American Graffiti. It's like, what are you even getting with George Lucas? Like, what kind of resume is is TH, THX 1138 in American Graffiti? <laughs> um, but I think that the fact that he went with Nelvana, it just – looking back on it, it makes perfect sense. He wanted someone that was outside of Hollywood because George – saw Hollywood as a means to an end and that was it. And ever since they no longer meant anything to him financially, he does not use them if he does not have to. <laughs> and so I think it's it's so telling. You know, I didn't know this about Nelvana, about them being so young and that they had on their own kind of, and I haven't seen A Cosmic Christmas. It kind of makes me want to. But the fact that they had done something that was so out of the box, and like he said, it wasn't something that looked like it was coming out of California at the time. And that I'm sure that John Celestri just had to say that, and George was like, sounds good. You're hired. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> I think that's funny. Yeah, you know, Nelvana's still around, and they've produced a lot of stuff, like a ton of stuff that you're probably really familiar with. So give it a Google. And I think it's it's interesting because you're right that I think that the the usage of Nelvana in uh, sort of Easter egg sense throughout Star Wars canon and non-canon, I think the planet in the 2D animated Clone Wars is called mm. Nelvan yes. with two A's. And I, I think that that to me indicates that there's sort of this respect, this uh, – this like first footing almost that comes with understanding Lucasfilm's history with animation that they want to honor it in this continued tradition of it, which came much later, right? Like Mm -hmm. 15 to 20 years later. Uh, So to me, that indicates that they were on the same page and as said so by John Celestri, who's a very prolific uh, animator. If you Google him, a lot of great stuff comes up, including Caitlin, the Swan Princess. And, oh my god. I know. <laughs> and I I feel like it's if it's what a fascinating history, you know. Without yeah. without this 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 partnership, would Lucasfilm Animation Department even be around today? Who knows? Yeah, that's a big question. I know, it's too big. It's too big. <laughs> yeah. Because-, <laughs> yeah. Well, because you know, the the holiday special comes out and it 
was received back then very much the same way it's received now. And <laughs> the, the <laughs> animation is kind of put on the back burner until we get to Ewoks and Droids in 1985 and 1986. And there was this great quote by George in the Paul Duncan book, the Star Wars Archives book, where he said, quote, I've always been interested in animation. It's a chance to experiment with ideas and new people and Star Wars characters. The Star Wars world is much easier to deal with in, in, in animation. You can be much more flexible in development of ideas. I put off doing it for years because I didn't have the time. I This is so, this is like George in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And he, <laughs> you read any biography or kind of timeline of his life and the, he, Things always start off like, I've been trying to do this for years. I just haven't. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually so true. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you talk, he talks about writing the prequels and and writing um, like The Phantom Menace. He's like, I've been trying to do it. I've I've started this five years ago. And it's like, oh, what have you got? Nothing as far as the script. (laughs) He's just been in in my head, in my notebooks that only (laughs) so many people have access to. Yeah. But even then, it's like it's not really even in the notebook yet. It's just (laughs) it's just in his head. He he knows what notebook he's going to write it in. (laughs) He just hasn't done it yet. But the this this. You remember that these quotes are being taken from the 80s. And when you think about how – that's the thing that I love about George is that he is so consistent with – and he's always 10 to 15 years ahead (laughs) of everyone else in terms of how important these kinds of stories can be as far as taking the time to develop the technology that they did when creating the original trilogy. And then – you see through the creation of Ewoks and droids that he, even now he's wanting to take it a step further. That, it, yes, it's a children's story, but it can be more sophisticated. It can be higher quality. It doesn't have to be, you know, just a cartoon. It can be something else. It can be cute and fun, and it is for kids and young people, but let's make it better. And the things that they were – they, that they were doing were really revolutionary. Like there's this um, talking about the development of or the production of the show Ewoks. Mike Herman, who worked on the show, he basically was talking about how their George wanted to do something different with children's stories, and he said, "We started meeting with George in May 1984." George told us what his hopes for them, the shows, are. He wants to raise the standards of Saturday morning programming for children. His main complaint is in the acting. We want to put real feelings into the show, happy feelings, some sadness and comedy, humor. Comedy is very important to us. The bottom line is that animation is a manufacturing process. Much of what you see on television now, remember in the 80s, has eight to 9,000 cells to make a half hour's animation. What people will see on droids and Ewoks will be about 20,000 cells per show. (laughs) We want a richer uh, show, more in the classical tradition of animation. I read that and I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) literally double and the thing is too is that george is putting all of his own money into this this is what he does with every except for star wars everything that he can he has done his put his own money he's put his money where his mouth is every single time and it's maybe like Ewoks and droids, I wouldn't say, has the kind of legacy that something like clone wars has or will have in 20 years you know but even then, it's like these things lasted for two years and he was already putting in 
double the production value basically into it because he saw value in it. I don't know. It just George Lucas is so consistent in wanting to push the boundaries of what he does in everything he does. It doesn't matter what it is. He wants to make it better and he wants to take it to the next level with technology and with the storytelling too. I think so much of what George wants to do also is create a teaching experience, the best possible experience one can have, mm-hmm. and understand why that is such a good experience, you know, yeah. and kind of prove out that when you when you pour and push the technology to its boundaries, then you get a better product in the end, one that is able to to share this this core mythology, these happy feelings, some sadness, comedy, humor all these things that are super important to George in a, in a more sophisticated medium than something that George grew up with. It, you're so right in saying that it is so consistent because it really is. You're so right when you say that he put his money where his mouth is. He made the blockbusters and then he wanted to you know take that money and put it into the arts and developing it somehow. And all these different avenues, sure, you, we might not love droids and Ewoks. I, I think that it's not something that we grew up with, so we don't necessarily have the nostalgic feelings for it. But at the same time, so many people do. And I think that it, it really did dip George's own toes, right, into developing an animated <laughs> story, an animated series that wasn't just this, you know, nine minute cartoon in the holiday special, something that he despises, but instead <laughs> experimenting with this different medium that, um, in in a long form way, the twenty thousand cells per so. Oh my god! Yeah, which I don't even know. Like, what would be? How would you inflate that for today's animation? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know because it's so different. Because this is a two D show. Um, we haven't necessarily specified, but we'll get into that. I think when we talk about the Clone Wars and moving straight into CG and how the process was different, but. I still, I don't know. I still find that pushing the boundaries insane. And also, I think that George has always been very consistent in his uh, his want to never dumb anything down for kids, to not give kids a product that was somehow lesser than what the adults were getting just because it was for kids and their memories are, you know, not as sharp or something like that. That was something that George was so keen on exploring, exploring those those themes, those myths that the kids kids could understand. And I'm not saying that droids and Ewoks is, you know, high art. In some ways, like you could probably argue that it is, but I think that there's, I don't know, I don't know. There's just uh, there's just so much to admire about George Lucas in this time period, taking things that could be successful, could be not, and running with them and trying to experiment with them and how many ideas does George have that he hasn't acted on I would like to know so many how many notebooks are just waiting to be written in his office yeah so many yeah one of the one of the things that they also talked about with the production of Ewoks and droids what like you were saying about things being like a teaching opportunity and you know we think about George as someone with a very singular vision and how Everything that came out of Star Wars until 2012 
was his you know it, mm. it got his stamp of approval and i think you see throughout the second trilogy that sometimes that like with the phantom menace it was like nothing could be done without his stamp of approval and it's like okay like we gotta we gotta loosen the reins here a little bit just just a smidge <laughs> um but the creators who were working on these shows talk about how there was a lot of freedom to just like throw ideas around and what you were saying about the you know, using different, like not dumbing down things for kids just because it's a kid's show. They talked a lot about how they relied on Campbell. They're pulling from mythology, which, you know, Charlotte and I are reading that like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> but it's something they also reference this book by Bruno Bettelheim, which is called The Uses of Enchantment as a source of inspiration, especially with the Ewok show. And this was not a book that I don't think I'd ever heard of before. I think I've heard of Bruno Bettelheim, but I don't know if I knew this book like off the top of my head. But uh, we bought it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. As we do. <laughs> and this, it, we haven't gotten a chance to dive into it yet, but it is so interesting. And the fact that they brought this book up, I think, just speaks a lot. Again, it just confirms more. It just like you just add it to the narrative of what George Lucas is looking for in creating these stories. He's looking for things that like with the, that quote by John Celestri where he said it was a traditional theme in a non-traditional manner. That's Star Wars. <laughs> and that I think that's what George Lucas has always been going for of pushing technology and the way that you can tell a story and even the where a story is in a galaxy far, far away. But using that medium to tell these traditional stories and fairy tales and mythology and the uses of enchantment. One, I just, I love that title. <laughs> I think that title is perfect. I, I kind of think it's a better title than like the hero with a thousand faces as far as <laughs> what it's getting, like the underlying theme of like, this is how mythology and fairy tales have been presented throughout time in different areas of the world and stuff like that. And the different kind of, uh, themes and motifs that are used in commonly told stories. I think it's a better, I think it's a better title. There I said it. <laughs> <laughs> that That's me without having actually really read the book yet. <laughs> I'm judging a book on its title and that's where we're at in 2020. <laughs> Month five of quarantine. <laughs> but I kind of lost what I was saying. I, I just think that there is – I like seeing the conversation around the development of these early shows because it really does point the way to what, what George is going to continue to do when he actually has the time and money and technology to do it with, as we'll be talking about, the Clone Wars. Yeah. I think that you might have not mentioned this, but The Uses of Enchantment – is a book about how to read fairy tales in a modern sense and how to bring that into storytelling yeah, and how to how, how to sort of take a thesis statement out of a fairy tale and how to apply it to new stories in the future or to even understand what that thesis statement is as you were a child and had a developing mind and didn't understand that and now you're older revisiting these. And I think that's such an important concept to approach Star Wars with anyway. If we can think about Star Wars as a space opera, that has fairy tale origins, 
we can always approach Star Wars that way. And I think that's it's it's really important to come at it from that point of view, at least sometimes, because that's definitely in the back of George's mind often, is to present a story to a child that um, has a happy ending or that one person can see themselves in. And I think that is also a very important senti- uh, sentiment about fairy tales in general. And I think you had written this in the notes, Caitlin, but the Ewok show also deals a lot with nature. And I think this is something that George was probably getting at in Return of the Jedi, this whole nature versus machine concept. And I like the idea that 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 expression that was presented in Return of the Jedi, this idea that nature can take down a machine, is further presented in a cartoon where, uh, you know, the mystical energy of nature is very much present. Mm -hmm. I also think we'd be remiss to mention that Star Wars animation at this point, and and this was a complaint, I think, even in 1983 when Return of the Jedi came out, but the merchandising around the Ewoks was crazy, right? I think you have to, when we're talking about Star Wars animation, merchandising goes hand in hand. And this is something that we'll get into in the next part, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can really foster a lot of great stories and a lot of stories that we're probably familiar with that had merchandise origins. Um, and I think that it, with the Ewoks, it just always comes to mind because I think that Ewoks are something that fans who expressly don't like Ewoks are like, they were created for merchandising and in a way, sure. <laughs> Isn't all of Star Wars at this point sort of merchandise-centric at the same time? George made sure that he had the rights to merchandise in Star exactly. Wars. Like, exactly. He, he knew. I just People who complain about that, I'm like, it's always been merchandise. I don't... Oh, yeah, it's not new. And yeah, I think that, yeah. that it's always... And it's been... That was further pushed, I think, with Ewoks and Droids, the show. The ironic thing probably is that from the Star Wars holiday special, Boba Fett, I think, has become this iconic symbol from the holiday special that has really been, in a lot of senses, a top seller and maybe the most... I I, I don't know if this is true, but off the top of my head, the rocket-firing Boba Fett Mm -hmm. is maybe the most sought-after collector's item of all time with Star Wars and I think that all these characters that are introduced in animated mediums do come with a price tag of <laughs> merchandising <laughs> and all of these things are tangled together and I challenge the listener to not think about that in a negative sense but instead realize that it's always been part of the fabric of Star Wars storytelling mm-hmm. and George as someone who is very much aware of that and then also pushes the narrative on Ewoks of the nature aspect the environmentalism the connection to the natural doesn't necessarily negate the fact that merchandising was core also to the production of the show both of these things can exist while you're hugging your you can watch ewoks and consider environmentalism while hugging your princess yeah yeah your mass-produced toy yeah yeah it's it's quite the combo. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like uh, I don't know. It, it they, they don't necessarily go hand in hand, but in I think Star when Wars, we're engaging with Star Wars, they do. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it is what it is. 
But, <laughs> you know, I remember we'll talk about this in, I guess, the next episode or the episode after. But this was a big critique of Forces of Destiny of, it. you know, they just made the, that, that show to sell the dolls. And it's like, well, George Lucas made Star Wars in part to sell dolls of his own in 1977. So, you know there (laughs) (laughs) let's put this in our back pocket and i want to ask this question so after ewoks and droids in 1986 there was a pause in star wars animation there wasn't a lot going on and i wanted to kind of discuss whether we think this speaks to george's ideas of giving perhaps giving up on animation as a medium or does it speak to like a larger pause in star wars content or is it both I think, honestly, it speaks to a larger pause in Star Wars content. I think the thing that we haven't really discussed here is that even though George was pro-Nelvana, that was in, that was outsourced, basically. And so what we then see, like with all things that George does, he brings it in-house. And I kind of think that, you know, you read about George at the end of... I mean, he's busy during this time, right? In the, in the 80s, even though there's a pause on Star Wars stuff, he's he's doing a lot of other things. We've got Indiana Jones. We've got Captain EO. We've got – there's like – I can't remember all of it, but he's busy. Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh, my God. Howard the Duck. Thank you. Thank you. The young Indiana Jones series. Like, there's, there's a lot going on, too. So I think that it's a combo of it's a pause on Star Wars because he was very burnt out from Star Wars still from Return of the Jedi and that he was working on other things as well. And also, he's going to be gearing up, as we'll see in the next part, to create his own animation department so these things aren't outsourced. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that technological constraints probably really frustrated him as you talk about uh, outsourcing. I think that during this time, we see the rise of the Pixar computer and this pivot towards CG and all the things that were happening at ILM with Jurassic Park in the Mm -hmm. early 90s. I think that the the world of uh, animation was really changing. And I think so many people of this medium in this job, and I can't speak for everyone but at least from what I've heard in my in my <laughs> I, again I'm just a fan but I understand that you can't speak for the thousands of animators I, I just feel like I gotta I gotta sometimes I gotta caveat that anyway I just feel like people were stressed like what's gonna happen when the computer takes over our jobs will yeah. hand-drawn animation really even be valued and at the same time companies like ILM were leading the charge in computer generated everything so this like warring sensibility really is happening yeah i think i think you're right about that i think but i don't think george ever saw it that way no i don't think he did either yeah because you look at you just look at the lucasfilm art departments which even with ewoks and droids they're a lot of those ideas and concepts were being pulled from the, you know, like the Ralph McQuarrie archives at the time. George doesn't throw anything out when it comes to the art department. And even the the genius of having the art department at Lucasfilm continually working concurrently with the films that are in production, like concepts and art department and script production, like they all start at the same time. <laughs> and so even... I, I think that 
if I was an animator at the time, I would feel that way. But I don't think that George ever saw it that way. Like, I still think he thinks that all of that is incredibly important to the process. And that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Star Wars has a huge art department. Yeah, I would say that he was all thinking that it was all going to one goal. If yeah, we advance exactly. the technology here, then it will help over here. But I think that at the time, I can imagine that as an animator, it would be incredibly scary mm-hmm. to be like, I don't know how to do that. What am I going to yeah. do? But I think that that was part of George Lucas's brain in being like, no, we're all advancing to a way for everything to be done easier, faster, better, quicker, and more accessible to both the animators and the the people who are watching the show so that we can tell as many stories that have the most expansive environments possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Are we ready to move on to part two? Yes, let's do it. You know, initially when we first started, we, we talked a lot about style and how this is going to translate into animation. But I'm definitely a you know very uh, true fan of 2D traditional animation. You know, from Disney through Warner Brothers, through the Fleshers, through everything. You know, all the history that's established animation as an art form. And so it was kind of important to us to create a style where it spoke true of Star Wars and uh, related to it, but it also had its own visual point of view. thing that attracted me to it, it has a slight anime feel to it, and I'm very interested in anime, and I was really interested in moving into a kind of animation that was very different from anything we'd done in the past. And um, India is very good at bridging that transition between traditional animation and anime. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're going to be discussing Clone Wars 2D and the beginning of the Lucasfilm Animation Department. So I think our story really starts here in this section with Star Wars Clone Wars. It's very hard to not say the Clone Wars. (laughs) Uh, The 2D animated one doesn't have the the in front of it, in case you didn't know. (laughs) So, (laughs) In case you cared. Yeah, in case you cared. So this is Gendy Tartakovsky's 2D animated Clone Wars series that aired on Cartoon Network in 2003 to 2005. And so many fans have such a special place in their heart for watching this. This, Some of the clips were even two minutes, some of them 15, some of them 20. I definitely do. I remember watching this on my little iPad. On my iPad. Your oh my iPod. gosh, iPod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on my little iPod that's even older than that. And just being, and just loving it. And mm-hmm. it was like the the drips of prequel content that I could get, you know, as the as the movie was coming out. And I think this is really fascinating. We're going to like reach into our back pocket and bring back in merchandising. So in the book, Star Wars Stormtroopers, which is a really fascinating book that really just chronicles stormtroopers and the creation of uh, like the behind the scenes nature of iconography of Stormtroopers um, that came out in like 2017 and saw it on my shelf and was really happy to find basically the little information you can get these days about Star Wars Clone Wars. So the thing that's really interesting is the fact that this series had its origins in Hasbro merchandising being like, we need something to sell toys and to kind of guide everything all together. So in 2003 and 2002, this this concept was uh, 
was floated around. And Caitlin, could you read this quote? Sure. So this is from the Star Wars Stormtroopers book. And the quote is, Hasbro was instrumental in providing impetus to make the micro series happen, says Daryl DePriest, Hasbro's global brand marketing director. We asked Lucasfilm whether there could be created some form of entertainment to engage audiences in between movies. Through Transformer, we had a good relationship with Sam Register at Cartoon Network. Sam worked with Gennady Tartakovsky on Samurai Jack, and it was felt that his style could work well for a new Star Wars series. We brought Sam and Gendy together with Lucasfilm to present concepts. Then after that, George hired Gendy to create Star Wars Clone Wars, a hand-drawn 2D animated series, with the exception of ship animations, which are 3D CGI creations. I did not know that. Which aired on Cartoon Network over the course of three years, starting November 7th, 2003. So basically... This series was created to sell toys, and it is highly regarded as a fantastic series. And this is the first really dabble into exploring the Clone Wars period. I think it's so interesting that the Clone Wars were referred to in the original Star Wars, and then we don't really see any of it except for in the beginning of Revenge of the Sith and the end of Attack of the Clones of what the Clone Wars really are. And you have to get all this extraneous material to understand what the war was really like and i love the extraneous material don't get me wrong but it's a no it's no wonder that fans really liked the series that focused in on the jedi and characters that we had grown to love from the prequels and seen them in action in the war setting so it makes sense that the series was well received was also remarkably short. And I think this art style of Samurai Jack, I think a lot of us are really familiar with it if we grew up on Cartoon Network, did lend itself well to the samurai nature of the Jedi in the Clone Wars. Um, I like it. I especially like some of the the longer form episodes and some of the stuff with Padme. I have a very interesting memories of Star Wars Clone Wars. I... (laughs) don't think I ever latched onto it the way I think you wanted me to. <laughs> because this, right, this aired 2003 to 2005. I saw Star Wars for the first time in two, fall 2005 into 2006, I think is probably how we were marathoning it back then. And I just, I, biology, the, the splitter in your iPod watching on headphones, watching these little two-minute episodes. And I was just sitting there like, oh, huh. I don't know if this is for me. It's <laughs> very worry. It's very worry. It's I I I want to go back and rewatch it actually because it's been a it's been a long time. I but like I said, I, I don't remember automatically being like, yeah. <laughs> this this is the other Star Wars content I wanted. <laughs> I don't I don't remember feeling that way. But I do think I do think it's very funny and I think it like you said the the connection to the animation style of it was very specific. You know, Tartakovsky doing the Samurai Jack was an insanely popular show on Cartoon Network and so to have it in the same style it made a lot of sense it being a micro series. You know, it just Everything was kind of coming together for that show and what it would be leading up to. Of course, it's leading up to Revenge of the Sith. And there's this interesting, not interesting, but just kind of another perspective on the creation of the show. Because like Charlotte mentioned, there is 
really not a ton about the creation of this show. And this is from Brian J. Jones's book, his biography on George called George Lucas, A Life, which in retrospect, the, this is like such a, like, that's the title and that's what it is. <laughs> George Lucas, A Life. <laughs> So this is what he wrote about the creation of Star Wars Clone Wars. He said, a year earlier, starting in November 2003, he, George, had also begun managing at arm's length successful animated micro series. It was Lucas's intention to use the cartoon to bridge the gap between the two movies. And he had provided director and animator Gennady, Gendy Tarkatov. Tartakovsky with a storyline and ground rules, then left largely alone. Lucas had been so pleased with the resulting cartoons, which were fast, witty, and exciting, that he permitted Tartakovsky (laughs) to introduce one of Revenge of the Sith villains, General Grievous, in a March 2005 episode, two months before the premiere of episode three. I just, that's bananas to me. That would literally never happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these days. you think you we always talk about how wasn't there was like the camera the the live web feed of revenge of the set or revenge of the set uh-huh. <laughs> or like, i think it's basically all the prequels maybe attack of the clones and revenge of the set imagine a live feed camera into any star wars set these days <laughs> we barely got two seconds of palpatine laughing for a year for <laughs> nine months before trost came out and george is like yeah put him in the animated show <laughs> this in the animated show what I think is funny about this quote is that, you know, you were reading from the Stormtroopers book. It's like Hasbro approached George about creating, which I don't even know, were there toys associated yeah, with Clone Wars? Yeah, so there movie? were. There were a lot of them. And I, I'm sure we have listeners who remember them because I have them. There, there were round boxes that were kind of looked like a spaceship almost. And the, the logo was just so oppressive and yellow. And I, I love the branding we get these days. I think it's way more sensible for the times. But this the branding it was very specific in the in the um in the packaging for the clones because that's really what it was really about is that they wanted to uh create a lot of clones that they could market which makes sense because it's a striking design and you could collect them all and the the packaging itself sort of reflected the clone helmet and its roundness yeah, it's so strange. I really have no recollection of those toys. I think probably because of just when I came into Star Wars and that this wasn't something that I necessarily latched onto. Because I, I can tell you what the Kenner Holiday Special looks like from 1977. I can I can tell you those toys. <laughs> I know what the rocket firing Boba Fett looks like, the the big Millennium Falcon, the the like Vader carrying case thing you know i i've got i've got well, there's so much chronology around that sort of toy collecting yeah that we're, we haven't reached the point of uh, really reflecting on toys in the early aughts it's not we're not there yet you know and we will be we're almost there i think that we kind of got a taste of it at the phantom menace um mm-hmm. 20 year yeah at celebration with rancho obi-wan's exhibit and everything and it was like oh my god i completely forgot about all these and I think that we're, we're almost there, <laughs> but yeah. we haven't really seen so many documentaries exploring the explosion of toy collecting that was really beginning in 1977, 78. Yeah, exactly. But the the quote from the biography really kind of pitches it as George wanted something to connect these two. And then the Stormtroopers book is like, Hasbro wanted to sell toys. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's it's 
it's both. <laughs> yeah, I think it is both. Again, just again, to say that it's always going to be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Hasbro comes in with this idea about doing this show, and George is like, "Oh, you know, yeah, I've been wanting." Yeah, that's that's <laughs> one of the notebooks in my head that I've been meaning to fill out. So let's start. <laughs> what I think is crazy, I think this is this is probably one of the few instances where we have George was managing something at arm's length. <laughs> <laughs> with the micro series i don't really even think he was doing that for the nine minute holiday special i mean i think that nelvana produced that really really quickly and sent it into george obviously but i i think that he probably had a closer hand on that than maybe he did on this i don't know it's just reading that about him managing something at arm's length was honestly super surprising <laughs> I would say that speaks to the amount of restructuring, reshoots, and rewrites that were happening for Revenge of the Sith at that period of time Mm -hmm. that completely consumed George, that just like really this was a side project. And he was like, it's two minutes of animation. It's important. And I love how it turned out. So I'm going to give them General Grievous, which is super cool if you think about it. Mm -hmm. But I really do think it speaks to the, the sort of messy production of Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Also worth noting, which is always just a fun fact, is that James Arnold Taylor was in – he was Obi-Wan in Star Wars Clone Wars. And it, Tom Kane was also yeah. in this too. Yeah, yeah there's there's some carryover. Couple, yeah, but I, James Arnold Taylor and Tom Kane are the ones that come to my head. So the real important thing, though, from this, the success of this Clone Wars show, I think really – it sort of gives birth to this idea of George Lucas quietly starting Lucasfilm Animation, which happened in 2003. May 12th, 2003 is when George Lucas began the Lucasfilm Animation Department. And there's this there's this press release that came out to the LA Times. So Lynn Hale, I think if you're familiar with a lot of Star Wars history, Lynn Hale was the spokesperson, the PR for Star Wars, for Lucasfilm for so long. So Lynn Hale cautioned in the very beginning that the animation unit was still in its infancy and doesn't yet have its first project lineup. Currently, the staff includes what was ILM's nine-person animation development team, headed by Senior Vice President Patty Blau. But the creative ranks will grow, drawing talent from ILM's pool of 1,200 effects wizards from the animation community at large. So this is it. This is the beginning of it all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's like it's a hollow date. So many things happen in May for Star Wars. As if that, George wasn't busy enough. I know, right? It's and I think it's it's just fascinating how this was really quietly started. And I still I sort of feel like you know, Lucasfilm Animation is a subsidiary. It's part of Lucasfilm. It's not like its own studio like Pixar is or DreamWorks or anything like that. So I don't necessarily think that a lot of people even still today realize how much work was being done at Lucasfilm for animation. And I think that this quiet beginning, um, which is really followed closely after of breaking ground in Singapore for a, a whole you know, Lucasfilm Singapore building, which is so awesome. Guys, right now, Google Lucasfilm Singapore. <laughs> it's called the Sandcrawler, and it the, looks yeah, like a sandcrawler. It's, <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. And I think that this was um, a move by George Lucas, which I think is quite controversial in the space, to have 
yes, they had Lucasfilm animation in San Francisco, but at this time, the Presidio and the location that they filmed the Star Wars show today that a lot of us are familiar with wasn't there. That didn't happen until after Revenge of the Sith came out. So having a whole building that was dedicated eventually to these growing projects once Revenge of the Sith was over is really a fascinating move to me. And also this idea that it's in Singapore. It was a kind of a surprising move, I think, seen from a lot of people in Hollywood that they would build a, a huge building in Singapore. What I think is interesting about kind of the press release about the the creation of the of Lucasfilm animation is that it really talks about how ILM has wanted to do its own thing, its own animated projects, but it's been working on everyone else's animated projects. <laughs> um, it lists that they worked on the, the Hulk, Peter Pan, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Like obviously ILM is the head of the industry really in all things. And you think about the other kind of animated films that are being done at this time. You know, the article talks about or writes about Monsters, Inc., Shrek, Ice, Shrek and Ice Age and, you know, Pixar, Walt Disney, DreamWorks. Like this is kind of this is when things are really starting to get going as far as 3D animated projects and big blockbuster films. So it kind of makes sense that Lucas is like <laughs> – Pixar was mine. <laughs> like I should be doing this. And the thing is, is that like ILM could be doing that. They just haven't they need they needed their own dedicated studio to be able to do that kind of stuff. They had yeah. there was this quote in there that said, you know, ILM has really wanted to prove themselves in the last several years, but it's never worked out, said Kevin Koch, president of the Animation Guild. It also go- The article also goes on to say that in 1997, ILM hoped to produce its first animated movie, a computer-generated Frankenstein for Universal Pictures. Two years later, after regime change at the studio, however, Universal lost interest in the project and pulled the plug, even though ILM staff had done extensive work on models and story reels. Um, competition and past frustrations notwithstanding, some observers believe that Lucas enjoys natural advantages that are likely to make him a serious player this time around. He's always been on the cutting edge of film entertainment, filmed entertainment technology, said Gerald Clower Madison, <laughs> entertainment <laughs> analyst Jeffrey Logsdon. So I think I think it's kind of interesting reading press releases like this that are now, you know, from 2003 or 2005, 15 years ago, knowing that, you know, someone being like, he's sure to be a major player this time around and knowing that the Clone Wars is imminent and it really is going to be a major player. And it just, you think about all the other, like like I said, blockbuster animated projects that are going on at this time. And it makes sense that George is finally ready to have their own dedicated space to doing it because he knows that they have the capabilities and they have the technology to do it. They just have to have their own animation studio. And so he makes it. He does it. He does the thing. (laughs) He does the thing. He does the thing. And now this is when we get to the thing. (laughs) The thing, right? This is when... Dave Filoni is hired for the Lucasfilm animation department. And Charlotte and I recently rewatched. There's this great, which I think we'll be pulling from a couple of things throughout this series and definitely in this episode, but there's this like one hour interview with Dave Filoni on the Star Wars show from 2016. And it's really great. <laughs> it's a really good interview. He's interviewed by Andy Gutierrez and it, he just says a lot of really interesting things about 
you know, how he came into animation and how he got his job. I feel like it's not actually a story he tells that often, but I feel like I've heard it a lot in the past year, um, if that makes sense, which I guess it kind of doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Dave worked on Avatar The Last Airbender, which Charlotte and I just – I don't think you're quite done with it yet, but – we both have watched Avatar The Last Airbender for the first time, which is a big deal, which we've already said on a, other episodes before. So sorry if that's old news for all of you. But what I think is kind of crazy that I was kind of reflecting on is that Avatar The Last Airbender was Dave's first directing experience. And George was like, that's the guy <laughs> and hired him to be this to be the supervising director for this thing that hadn't even been created yet on a guy who I think in season one of Avatar which is the only season Dave was working worked on with that show I think he directed four episodes maybe out of that yeah a low number not it wasn't like he did every episode but and this kind of brought me back to the Nelvana animation studio that that was such a young animation studio but George knew what he he saw something that he liked in that studio and he was like I'm there it <laughs> even though they'd only been around for for 7 years and had done something i guess what they were talking about with the cosmic christmas that was kind of off the wall and then here you have Dave who has only directed maybe four or five episodes of an animated show on his own and George is like, here, come be in charge with me <laughs> of Star Wars. And I just – I think it's an interesting pattern of the types of people that George hires to be in charge of these really big projects. And Dave, in every interview, talks about that mentoring process of George with him. And it kind of reminded me of this quote from Dave in The Mandalorian, the gallery behind this scenes uh, series, where – it was in one of the first episodes of that series and they were talking about bringing on all these people and there's this, you know, cutaway interview with Dave and he's like, you know, you want to hire people who have skills and and have the resume and, and obviously that's important, he said, but also at the end of the day, you want to hire good people. And I think that that's really evident in like in what he learned from George about hiring good people, about going with your gut instinct. Because I think you look at people like like Nelvana and, and even Dave, and I feel like if you were looking at them on paper compared to probably other people who were in the running, they might not have been at the top of the list because of their experience level. But there was something in the stories that they had created that were really compelling to George. And he was like, that's that's who I want. Like he trusts his gut instinct and that was proven to be a good decision. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that's really funny is that Dave tells this story about he he thought he was being pranked essentially when he was being asked to come in to interview for a job at Lucasfilm Animation. And he was like, that doesn't even exist. What is Lucasfilm Animation? He was at Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon, as we all know, has a, you know, a huge animation component and has always had a huge animation component so hearing this you know lucasfilm animation and here's dave filoni who's a huge star wars fan has a plo Koon costume in his garage is like what are you talking about that doesn't make any sense <laughs> you know you're, you're pranking me it's, it's, it's a hilariously charming interview and i i think that that is really when you look at that and then you think about where we are today with the amount of animated projects within star wars that are really such the core fabric of what star wars is it's 
it's kind of amazing to look back upon like start starting with like the that article mentions like nine people and then bringing in someone like Dave Filoni who had a, a you know a, a short list of things that he had directed um and had worn very like a lot of hats that to say that he's not experienced is not true because he had been in a lot of different jobs just not as prolific as mm-hmm. Avatar the Last Airbender which i think from the first season from the get go was a hit and was you you watch only the first season of Avatar Avatar the Last Airbender and you can think like George Lucas and be like man this mythology is similar to Star Wars and whatever they're trying to weave comes from a mind of someone who understands what i was trying to do you know mm-hmm. yeah and so you can un- you can see that that would be the pool that they would be picking from and I just I don't know, it's it's really interesting to like retrospectively as a fan think about what that time was like where things were not being produced, that there was this really hush hush, like I'm gonna do the Clone Wars and Dave was is like, Well, you already did that. Because <laughs> yeah, we already did that. But of course, we all know that the Clone Wars and Clone Wars are very different and one is way more long form than the other. Both are beautiful animated mediums. But one is significantly more crafted by George Lucas than the other. Yeah, absolutely. I will say there's this there's this kind of fun aside from the director of Clone Wars 2D series, Tartakovsky, who w- would go on to be the director for the Hotel Transylvania series, which I think is funny. I don't know why. It just like, oh. I do know him from other stuff besides Samurai Jack and uh, Dexter's Laboratory. So, which is funny because Dexter's Lab was one of my favorites when I was a kid. I I liked that one, I think, more than Samurai Jack. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) But when he found out that George was making the Clone Wars series, he thought it was a terrible idea and accused Lucas of going back, quote, back to the well one too many times. I think it's the easiest thing to do because he doesn't need to come up with a whole new thing, said Tartakovsky. There's so much more he could explore. And then Lucas later said, I don't think in response to Tartakovsky, but just in general about the about the show also being like they're basically being a second Clone Wars. He said, it's not a matter of trying to prove anything to anybody. Lucas insisted, I don't have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Which I man, if I could have been the reporter getting that (laughs) soundbite, you know. I just think it's it's really funny. I I will if you will allow me to read a page from the biography, the George Lucas biography that we've kind of been quoting. I think there if you're not aware of kind of the very beginning cuz I think we're kind of segueing into the the Clone Wars movie here which we have already talked about pretty recently in February we revisited this film so I don't want to talk about I don't think we want to talk about the film itself but there are some uh, interesting tidbits as far as how it came to be that everyone might not be aware of I know a lot of us know that it was the um the show was already created and then you know I think a lot of us think of it as like at the very last minute George is like let's make it a movie (laughs) and put it out there which is kind of true but there's this really interesting kind of um I don't want to say narrative about it but just the how it actually happened is kind of interesting so this is from the uh George Lucas biography again so it says 
This is on page 449, in case you want to follow along in the paperback version. So he said, Lucas took the same approach to selling an animated series that he had with the young Indiana Jones, waiting several years for animators to produce at least 22 episodes of the series before he began making the rounds of the networks, looking for takers. Typically, he had no intention of negotiating. All of this is like so George Lucas, I can't. Um, He was the one financing the series. Each episode cost him between $750,000 and $1 million and was asking the networks to pay only for the licensing fee to distribute and broadcast the show. As he saw it, networks should be falling over themselves at the very idea of having an officially sanctioned Star Wars program in their lineup. Furthermore, there would be no cherry-picking the series. A network had to take all 22 episodes or lose out altogether. It's much easier for me to just do the show I want and then say, here it is. Do you wish to license it or not? Lucas said, (laughs) with only a hint of exasperation. That's it. There's no notes, no comments. I don't care what your opinion is. You can either put it on air or you don't. (laughs) God. Most po- most past, even Cartoon Network, which had run the microseries, was only lukewarm toward the new one. But Lucas promised Time Warner, who owns Cartoon Network, he would combine several episodes to make a theatrically released Clone Wars movie. The studio, smelling future Star Wars-related projects if it got involved with Lucas, agreed to distribute the film and strongly encouraged its corporate cousins at Cartoon Network to take another look at their remaining episodes. This time, Cartoon Network agreed to pick up the series, promising to debut it in the autumn of 2008, following the summer release of the Clone Wars movie in August. And I just think that's really interesting. I I think these are things I often forget about the beginning of Clone Wars, as far as the whole first season was already made, mm-hmm. more or less. And just, again, George Lucas's tenacity of... All of it or none of it? Do you want it? No. Okay, goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> it's great. I I think it's it I don't often forget about it because I think Ashley Eckstein refers to it a lot as in her origins of Ahsoka, she lived with Ahsoka for way longer than the audience knew about her. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was prepping for that response. It often kind of gets lumped into that response. But I do love this take it or leave it aspect of it because I think that that is part of the reason why Clone Wars works as a series so well is the movie, again, we've talked about it before, so we won't really dive too much into it, but the movie has such mixed responses, even from the most diehard fans, right? And I think that it's, yes, it was a conglomeration of a bunch of different episodes that had already been produced and put into one singular movie. How successful that movie is depends on your point of view and whether you like the fact that The Clone Wars begins with a movie or your introduction to The Clone Wars can begin with a movie if you don't go chronologically. And I think that it's, I don't know, I just think that it's its really fascinating, this whole idea of The Clone Wars spanned a really long time. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think that the ability for it to grow and change is something that George Lucas provided because he was funding it. He was this take it or leave it kind of aspect. If you want to be involved in it, Cartoon Network, then be involved in it. If you don't, I'm just going to shop it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really just in general how the business works, but not necessarily when there's a whole season already created. <laughs> and I I feel like it's just fascinating to me this idea that the Clone Wars really did grow and change because as an audience, we were able to, I don't know, I think that there's something really interesting about the fact that the the Clone Wars was created from George's mind 
And he knew that they could explore different aspects of it that were not going to be super appealing to to a lot of kids, yet would touch on themes that George really thought was important. And as an audience, we might not really love certain arcs because they're not, you know, quote, entertainment value. But it is able to, because of the the Star Wars brand, we are able to kind of give it a chance and chance after chance after chance until it kind of found its footing. I think that Caitlin and I both really liked it from the beginning. So I don't know if we fall into that group, but there is something interesting to me about how George was like, I'm going to make the thing. And (laughs) if you don't like it, it's just like this blow up really of what 1977 star Wars was making the thing that I want to make. And (laughs) you guys are going to be upset about with me. I'm going to go over budget. It's exactly what he did with the clone wars. (laughs) Yeah. But then he's like, it's my budget. It's my money. So I don't, I don't care. (laughs) Exactly. And it's just like, it's a, it's just an expanded version of how he approaches all of his projects. And that's yeah. what's so great about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, a lot of shows, you you produce the pilot and then people decide if you want to pick it up. But this is the thing about George is always being so forward thinking and wanting – like being com- like being committed to the story that he wants to tell. It's like he knows that he, – he knew – when Clone Wars is in development, that season three was going to be way better than season one. And that, and we see, we see Dave talking about this in the Mandalorian series, especially with uh, talking about the, the void and the technology that is used in that. And he's like, George was trying to talk to me about this kind of stuff in 2004. And I didn't really get it. (laughs) And now I get it, you know? And so the, George is so forward thinking with what the technology can be capable of. And so for him to say, like, this isn't a situation where this is a pilot that you can like or not like. This is this is the season. You can buy the season. <laughs> and I have faith in this product and that it's it's gonna it's it's gonna be good. So I also want to pull something which is interesting in the development of all this from the book by Chris Taylor, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, which I love this book. It's a very good book. I do too. I feel like we don't really reference this book a lot and we should because it's good. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, there is – the thing is about like these biography books, it's like they spend time on the animation side of things, but it's not a ton it's just like a couple pages interspersed throughout talking about the films but I think that these are all really important things obviously you know a lot of these books were written in like right around 2012 I think actually is when both of these books came out um actually I think the biography was 2016 but there's so much like these shows have created even more of a legacy since these books were written and so I think it will be great to see what these what the animation chapters in these books look like in another 10 years, you know? So uh, this I think is, is fun. You know, this part of the book is talking about Dave basically getting hired and how he had worked on Avatar, the last airbender he had and King of the Hill. And he had a a Plo Koon costume in his garage (laughs) and how that was really like weird. (laughs) 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 So it says this, uh, At Skywalker Ranch, Filoni nervously sat down with the creator, that's George, and showed him a sketch of five characters, Asla, Sendak, Lunkar, Cad, and Loop. 
Filoni's idea was that these characters were a team of Jedi and smugglers inserted into the galactic underworld during the Clone Wars to investigate the black market. All they would need was a cool ship, something like the Falcon. The Clone Wars would be like original trilogy Star Wars in which the fun came from the nobles rubbing shoulders with the scruffy nerf herders. Major characters from the prequel trilogy would cross paths with these new characters every so often. It would be a treat for fans to see Anakin and Obi-Wan and others, but they wouldn't be the focus of the show. Lucas considered Filoni's idea and shook his head. No, he said, (laughs) according to Filoni. I like my own characters. (laughs) I want to get Anakin and Obi-Wan in. But there was one thing Filoni's sketch had given George an idea for. I want to give Anakin a Padawan, he said, pointing at the sketch of Asla. Let's take that girl there. And that girl becomes Ahsoka. But I... (laughs) This... That... that I don't think I had really read about Dave's ideas for Clone Wars before this book came out. And... You know, you kind of see that Rogue One element there, even that like big shot gangster kind of vibe going on in that early, I guess, very Even Rebels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, And George just being like, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's hilarious. I think that there's a certain amount of wistfulness about I wish that I had more time to explore the Clone Wars in live action with the technology that I have right now to do animation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the perspective that George was coming from of, no, I like my characters. Let's do this story since everything is all part of a larger arc for Anakin and the Skywalker family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We are diving real deep into the Clone Wars already. So why don't we move on to part three, Keelan? Okay. I wanted to ask you about the medium of television versus a feature film. And do you find it more challenging with Star Wars doing a weekly series? Or is it somehow more forgiving in terms of longer character arcs or more episodes? There's nothing forgiving. We weren't making this for television. We were making it for the big screen. I said, think of this as a feature. Everything about it, the style, attention to detail, the lighting, everything is done at a feature level, even though it's going on television. Being young and impressionable, he said, well, you can't do that. Did I say that? Would I say that? Yeah, I would just gonna do that. How are we going to? do that it's impossible <laughs> especially like after we cut that sequence yeah it was like about yeah. 600 shots more than what they had in the first place <laughs> and, and you were it, right and you is... did it you know you go yeah. through and do that eventually you get the hang of it and then you don't say <laughs> that but i always keep them on their toes i always oh, yeah. say here that was hard here's something that's even worse here's yeah I think one of the most important lessons, which I gave you in the beginning, which was, and Francis Coppola taught me, he says, look, if you can't write, you can't direct. Because all you're doing is telling a story on film, but the story is still the same. And if you don't know what the story is and you don't know how to write the story, you're not going to know how to direct it. Yeah, there were two things I can remember very plainly. One was that you would watch stuff we did all the time and go, what are you trying to say? What does that mean? And I would explain it to you and you'd say, that's great. Everything you said, do it there because you're not going to be at people's home to explain it to them. Okay, we are here in part three where we're talking about the Clone Wars, and it is kind of hard to talk separately about the Clone Wars movie and the Clone Wars series and the development of them separately because it wasn't separate. (laughs) But... Like we mentioned in the last part, we did do a deep dive into the Clone Wars movie really recently in February before the premiere of Clone Wars Season 7. So if you are interested in hearing us actually talk about the characters and plot of that movie, you can check out that episode if you would like. But 
For this section, we're really going to be talking about the quote-unquote original run of The Clone Wars from 2008 to 2012, which is not counting the release of The Lost Missions or Season 7. We'll kind of cover that in our future episodes. Like we said, we are kind of going chronologically. But the series was announced on April 21st, 2005 at Celebration 3, where George Lucas announced plans for another animated series, which was The Clone Wars, and also Star Wars Underworld, which we all know... Did not happen. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Truly, truly, truly. But I think, you know, the one of the things, like we said, we were watching this like 2016 interview with Dave really talking, you know, I thinking about this interview now, I'm like, did he already know that Cloners is coming back? No, no, he didn't. (laughs) He might have. He might have. Yeah, you have no idea. Because it was announced in 2018. So... Maybe he did. I don't know. Anyway, food for thought. But he – I really like this interview. If you haven't watched it before, I definitely recommend it. It's – like we said, it's an hour long. And he talks a lot about the early days of the Clone Wars development and just learning how to be a director. And I think one of the things that people can point to as the biggest difference between Dave and George is their approach to actors. It's no secret that George Lucas is not an actor's director, but I think everyone who works with Dave says that he is. And he, I've never heard any actor talk about a negative experience, which I don't think actors would necessarily, but they've all been overwhelmingly positive about how much they enjoy Dave's directing. And he had he said that he learned a lot about voice acting from Andrea Romano as a guide for voice acting directing, which I looked her up and she is a very prolific voice actor um, director. She's done pretty much, I think, like everything from our childhoods <laughs> she was a part of in some form or fashion. So that was something I really didn't know, which I think is interesting because like that wouldn't have been something he necessarily learned from George because that isn't George's strength. I'm not saying he didn't learn anything about directing actors from George. George but is not an actor's director. Yeah, at all. exactly. Exactly. And I really loved Dave's view on directing in that interview. He said, my job, I'm, my job is that I'm guiding everything along. I want to get the best, best version of these things out of everyone, the actors. The only way we'll fail, why the crew and cast will fail, is if I haven't explained things clearly. If you don't know what the story is about, you can't be at the helm. If you don't know the answers to people's questions, everything falls apart. People end up doing their own thing. It can't happen. (laughs) And then Dave also says that ultimately you have to be a good people person to be a director. And this is where I think, like I said, is the biggest difference between Dave and George. I think Dave and George are on similar wavelengths, but I definitely think Dave is the better people person (laughs) than George Lucas is. And I don't know. I just – I really liked what he had to say about his view. He basically – I didn't write this down and I should have, but Dave's basic thesis statement on what directing is, especially for animation, is that it is about explaining what is going on to the actors, to the crew, because they're all looking at certain pieces of it, but not all of it at the same time. And he needs to be able to explain things clearly in order for them to give the best uh, output for whatever it is that they're doing. So if he can't explain it clearly, it's not going to work. And he can't explain it clearly if he doesn't have all the answers. And I think that so many people who are fans of Dave's work 
are often talking about like, wow, I could just listen to him talk about Star Wars forever (laughs) because he explains things so well. Yeah, I think that's so true. And in the same interview, he talked about how the mentorship from George made him learn that when you pause a frame, especially with an animation, and I think that this is very much seen throughout the prequels, that, quote, every shot has a purpose. And I think that, to me, this is so validating to hear as someone who spends hours picking apart Star Wars, because I do think that every shot should have a purpose. And Dave felt like that was... uh, a comment given to him by George that really instructed his filmmaking in in his directing in this way of making sure that you were giving away everything to your audience that you needed to, making sure that you were the most clear that you possibly could be, that clarity was paramount, that everything in a shot, which is, you know, crazy to think about the amount of shots that were happening within Clone Wars, right? When we're talking about CG animation, there's so much going on, so many beautiful shots, and everything has to have a purpose. Why is that there? What does that bring into it? And why am I going to spend three weeks on this, like, three-second shot if it doesn't inform the story as a whole? Everything is important. And I think that just when you think about George Lucas and Dave Filoni as these figureheads for creating this artistic work that we're still talking about years and years later, it is validating as a word I like to use, but I also think it's just extremely exact to be able to have that sort of clarity. And I think that we can all debate whether or not each episode is clear in its themes or whether we like the theme or everything like that. But this idea that you know, everything was improving, that we had all these seasons, something that I was mentioning like 10 minutes ago about how we had all this time to get used to it for people to learn the medium, which is still very new, especially in the television standpoint, to kind of make sure that everything was refined, everything was clear. And I think by season three and four of The Clone Wars, the purpose, the thesis, and what we were doing with the characters was clearer than ever. And I think that's really where it began. Be- the-, the fan base really started. Um, I think the fan base was there from the beginning. I'm not saying that, but I think that it really be- got like a diehard fan base around the third and fourth season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that's when we were skipping parties to watch it. <laughs> Literally skipping our own parties to watch it. We've told the story a million times, but I think that really says it all. We were teenagers and we were like, we can't possibly miss this episode of Mortis. We were 16. Which, we were 16. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, let me leave this high school party, our own high school party, to go watch Clone Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that it really does speak to, okay, this arc, we're going to do this theme and we're going to explore this theme. We're going to blow it up. And I have spoken before on the show how much I love the arc sensibility about creating shows in this way. And I think it particularly works with Clone Wars when you're bumping around to like a billion different characters and following a bunch of different stories, which is necessary for the Clone Wars since it is a sprawling war. But going back to that quote about how George really wanted his own characters, I think that it will always come back. And this is something we saw even at the end of the series. It will always come back to Ahsoka, the new character, and Anakin and Obi-Wan, his characters. And I, I find that the show is best when it is so clear that that's the, the, what we're getting at will affect those three characters. Yeah, I think... That's what's so interesting about Clone Wars is because that's that's what's best for us when yeah, we're watching yeah, it. Yeah. But I mean, there 
until Clone Wars season seven, people would bring up the clones and we'd be like, I know Rex. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. But the those arcs, that was where people were like, that's it. That's that's when it's performing at its best. And I think it's I think it's really special that this show can have different best parts and that they're all performing very well. I don't know. It's kind of I don't really know what other shows are like that. I feel like shows tend to have the thing that kind of soars above and beyond that really is what that show is known for. And it tend I think it tends to be more often than not one singular thing or one character arc or one like pairing of relationship or something like that. But I think Clone Wars, the Clone Wars, excuse me, <laughs> this is the one with the the. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Clone Wars is is relatively unique in that sense because it performs remarkably well on a lot of different fronts. Yeah, every single front, I think. But I think it is the most experimentatious thing that George had done. Probably, um, I don't know, maybe that's a too grandiose of a statement because the prequels themselves were pretty experimental. But I think producing such a large-scale television show that was computer-generated with his own money <laughs> uh, was, to me, I can look upon that and be like, that to me is one of the most ambitious parts of his entire career because I think it's it's an investment that paid off so much so that Disney Plus brought it back all these years later. Mm-hmm. And I think that w- the way that fans now look upon the prequels is heavily Im- informed by this expansive nature that happened when we all got the extremely heady stories that we got with the Clone Wars. I think that we can't look at the prequels anymore the same way that now that we have the Clone Wars behind us. If we, I can't imagine what my view of the prequels would be if I didn't have this behind me. I'm sure I'd still like them and love them. Like is a small word. I would love them. But I still think that it's it has vastly improved the public opinion. And be, that's because of the risks that George Lucas took with starting this animation studio, with pushing the boundaries, with with creating the series that like no one was doing this kind of computer animation to this scale for the mm-hmm. show at this time. Yeah. And what other show had its whole first season done before? Like, <laughs> it was like, you don't need a pilot. <laughs> you need a pilot? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have George Lucas financially backing it. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think it it is just it's the only thing that George Lucas can't like it's the only kind of thing that George Lucas could do. And it is really it's really special. It's it's a special show. I think I think we all know that and we've talked so much about how important Clone Wars is to us personally. Some of the fun things that we kind of came across, there was this really interesting article that we came across called A Day in the Life of Joel Aaron, mm-hmm. <laughs> which Joel and I were talking about it before we started recording, and we're like, man, I'm tired just reading that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an intense day. The day in the life of Joel Aaron. This long day. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was from 2008, I think, is when this article was from. But one of the – I think we all know 
Dave has talked a lot and so have the other creators like Joel um, in kind of the thing the thing about Clone Wars too is that it had great behind the scenes features and stuff like that and this was part of what George wanted when marketing the Clone Wars to different studios of for them to air it is that it would come with things like commentaries and the the DVD packages would be really great which the Clone Wars DVD packages are really great and uh, that's where that's where we got our start in analyzing Star Wars I would <laughs> I would say is those kinds of commentaries but that was always meant to be a part of this show which again you look at George he with with the second trilogy very aware that there was going to be things like DVD bonus content <laughs> and actively creating that with something like the making of the Phantom Menace, which we see in the in the first film, obviously. And I, it's that's always so important for Star Wars. I think we see that with George in the second trilogy, and then also with Ryan in the Last Jedi. He has talked a lot about how he was like, "I can't wait to put such and such on the bonus features," <laughs> um, and that's one of his favorite parts too. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of going off on a on a tangent there, but from a day in the life of Joel Aaron, just a reminder of what kind of what production looked like. At one point, he said he's walking through his meetings for the day, which is a ton. (laughs) And he said, we're running nearly 12 episodes at once, all in different states of progress based on a very tight milestone list that has nearly zero wiggle room. We do not stop for breaks in between episodes or seasons to regroup. Our production is a fast moving machine that needs constant correspondence internally as well as overseas. And this is, I believe this is referencing their Singapore office. What I think is so crazy is that they had such a head start. They had the whole first season done before it ever aired. But they're still like, we have this super tight production time. Someone who, who's working on that is listening right now and is like, you have no idea. Like, it was so crazy. It was so busy. Like, you can't even say that we have a head start because we never had a head start. <laughs> you know, and I think that Joel Aaron, by the way, he did a lot of things with lighting and cinematography throughout the animation and in Clone Wars. And he had has been involved in Star Wars animation projects from Clone Wars to Rebels to Resistance. And uh, it's really fascinating to read about his day in the life and even just the whole idea of 12 episodes at once. Oh, my God, I can't even imagine that. And the idea of zero wiggle room. And it's like it's a wonder anything has a cohesive theme. Honestly. (laughs) any sort of cohesion at all. I'm like, I can't even imagine that. And to me, every time, and maybe this is gets to the heart of why behind the scenes in production is so fascinating to me, is because I can't imagine it. I can't imagine being so tied up and having to produce something that will hit so many, like millions of people and make an impact that is potentially life-changing. And every day you have to balance that. And, and every day you're balancing 12 of those. <laughs> it's just, I, I can't even. I think that I've talked a lot with Caitlin about the Frozen 2 behind-the-scenes series. It's on Disney Plus right now. And I, you know, you hear about people working on one singular shot that's like two seconds. And they spend months on it. And it could potentially get cut. And I think about that and then I, I I that's one movie and then I think about a TV show that has so many like balls up in the air, right? All these things that have to have to get done. <laughs> and yeah, you know, the constant co- correspondence internally as well as overseas. I can't even imagine what that's like. And this is also a world without Zoom, you know. 
I, I think Skype exists, of course, but I think that it's just a lot of a lot of digital correspondence, and it's a it's a wonder we get a a really solid product at the end of it. The thing is, too, in that article, Joel talks about how all these episodes have because he's the lighting director. All these episodes have different vibes, and he writes about. I think at the I think in this article he was watching Empire of the Sun for. Mm-hmm lighting ideas so the lighting for you know the series season five finale with ahsoka is very low and it's you know it's 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 darker and stuff like that whereas you know something the landing at point rain is a lot brighter and so if you have 12 of these episodes going on at the same time they're all completely different even down to these little things it just it really does boggle the mind how anything got done coherently I think something, another interesting tidbit that we got was from Killian Plunkett, who was the design lead on The Clone Wars and a bunch of other shows. He's a very, uh, you hear his name a lot. He says, a quote, our whole goal from the very early on in The Clone Wars and that it's a mentality that is carried throughout Rebels was it's better off if it feels true rather than looks real. That's been something of a mantra because the audience will sort of go along with your story and invest in these characters more if everything seems like it's a singular world and it's convincing and it's consistent. I think that I've been trying to articulate this for a while, but I think there is something great about an an animation style, um, an artistic style that, is presented within Clone Wars, things don't have to be realistic, but they have to be true to the characters. Mm -hmm. And I like when people... Dave Filoni said something interesting, as usual, on the (laughs) the Mandalorian (laughs) behind-the-scenes series about moving from medium and how certain uh like rebels is you know lightsabers look certain like super glowy and they, it looks different in the mandalorian with a dark saber and all all these types of things about the visuals and i think as long as you commit to it i think it really it does come down to committing to the the framing in which you explore your your story in and i i again i'm just struggling to articulate this but i do think that there's something so earnest about uh going forth with something that feels true to the character to the environment to whatever you're doing in animate in the animating process the lighting process the special effects process as long as it feels true and not gimmicky or believable and impressive then i think that the audience will go along with it and i do think that I can I can say that I think that the Clone Wars very few times have I've ever been pulled out of it in terms of a Star Wars story. Most things are believable. Most things make me laugh. Most things make me cry that are supposed to, you know, and I think that it's it really is testament to me of how when we talk about tracing the origins of Lucasfilm animation and the animated medium, I just want to make sure that we're 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 giving credit to the fact that the animated medium is just as important as live action because we're, we're able to explore these certain concepts, perhaps even more so than we are in live action. And that exploration, as long as it's done in earnest, the audience buys it. And we did, we did buy it and we bought it in the Clone Wars, we bought it in Rebels and we definitely bought it in Resistance. And we bought everything that went along with it and it was expensive. <laughs> True. 
Yeah, I think that's really important to remember. There within that like one hour interview that I keep referencing with Dave on the Star Wars show, they were talking. This is right before um, Thrawn came back in Rebels. This was, I think, the first trailer for Rebels season three is when he came back, or season yeah, season three uh, that had featured Thrawn had just premiered, and it was of course a huge deal. So they were talking about bringing Thrawn back from you know the the Legends material, and this. Dave, I I knew this about George, but it's always kind of surprising to hear, I think, because he said this thing, where, which I don't think is true anymore and isn't true for Star Wars right now. But he, Dave had said that to George, the only thing that was ever canon was the films and the TV shows. Like for him, nothing else was canon and it was all just kind of ideas floating out there <laughs> and that the the films and the tv show were the most were the most important things because that's what and that that was kind of part of andy's question of what is it like bringing something out of legends into canon um as opposed because at the time right there were canon books that were being created and dave was saying like well for george like none of the books and comics were canon anyway so <laughs> it didn't really matter <laughs> to bring Thrawn in for him it was just like not that it didn't matter and George wasn't even involved in Rebels like that but the sensibilities that Dave had as far as thinking about some of those things is always kind of surprising because growing up with Star Wars when everything is canon and that's kind of what I adhere to and and having not really had an attachment to the Legends material it's always such an interesting perspective and so I think like you were talking about keeping in mind that for George all of this was the same playing field and getting like the goal was to explore this universe and if the universe was better explored in animation let's do that and I think it's worth um rereading the quote from George way back in the 70s and 80s about Ewoks and droids where he said, animation is a chance to experiment with ideas and new people and Star Wars characters. The Star Wars world is much easier to deal with in animation. (laughs) You can be much more flexible in development of ideas. I put it off doing it for years because I didn't have the time. And it is like it is so much more flexible <laughs> and there's so much more room. I think like we would have it would have been very hard to get something like Mortis or World Between Worlds or the Bendu or even some of the something like the Colossus <laughs> in live action, at least like in this time period, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Something I wanted to bring up is something that I don't think we've touched upon on our show before, at least in this way. But when you look at the breadth of work that comes with Star Wars and animation all together, lumped together, I would say that the Clone Wars stands out as the darkest among it all, that it was exploring concept. I think it is probably the highest age range, too, Mm -hmm. of the people that they were trying to target. And... I think it's fascinating to consider that just because I think that they started sort of younger when they introduced Ahsoka and as time went on and they were exploring concepts within war, the idea of war itself when you dive into it is just naturally dark. So maybe the the audience then is, is leveling up, the aging up. And I just think that when you think about George's thesis statement of um, – being able to transpose certain concepts about 
uh, myths and themes in life in to children how does the clone wars really fit into that and does it in in the in the way that george has always set out to do i think so yeah, I mean, I think so too. Yeah. I just think it's 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 weird because I think we we got to this dark place with the Clone Wars, and we, I think Star Wars in general, in terms of the animation, has kind of taken a step back. And I wonder what things are going to look like in the future, and why at this time did George think it necessary to explore these darker concepts? And maybe it says something about the world that we were living in at that time that the exploration of war and the nitty gritty of it was so necessary. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just think that it's, it's, um, if George's whole thing was to like reach as many people as he wanted, I think that this kind of also speaks to this idea of, uh, everything having a level playing field and that all these different concepts are, if you think about like Star Wars is almost like a funnel of the people that are going down into the fandom (laughs) (laughs) and like maybe Ewoks is at the top, the largest part. And then at the very bottom, you get like more sophisticated quote, sophisticated um, series that deal with deeper themes and pretty, like I said, heady concepts like Clone Wars does at the very bottom, because that's, that's kind of the funnel of Star Wars fandom, (laughs) you know, and, this whole idea of like reaching all these different people um, and exploring all these different concepts and this period of time where there wasn't that much Star Wars anyway, I think people were really grasping onto it because it was another way to r- review how we thought about the prequels as a, as a solid piece and the saga as a solid piece as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the Clone Wars was speaking to all of that as as a fan of all ages, you can watch this and re- and then watch, you know, the live action um, movies and think that these were all reflective of each other because they were. But I think that it they, the Clone Wars really spoke at a different place than all the other series that we were mentioning, especially the 2D Clone Wars, which was really a prep series for the Revenge of the Sith. This was a more reflective series about how we understand the movies as we know them and then also how do we think about the characters and the idea of loss and and also are introduced to a new character as Ahsoka who is her own her own being entirely and how she fits into the story as a whole a story that we are also expected to be familiar with mm-hmm. I think to a certain degree not always but to a certain degree yeah I think that's a really good point in comparing the two not just for the fact that you know Obviously, the Clone Wars is, at the end of the day, I think 130 episodes <laughs> over the course of 10 years, pretty much. And the micro series was, I think, maybe tops out at just under two hours when it's all said and done. <laughs> and they're very different. But like you said, the the micro series is looking ahead and the Clone Wars series is reflecting back. And that's a very different point of reference and framing when you think about the creation of of both series and kind of their goals, George Lucas's involvement, all of it. They're very different in that sense. And especially, I think that's probably maybe the most important thing or one of the most important things as far as, you know, the obvious as far as length and art style and, and stuff like that. It's it's a really interesting perspective, I think, to keep in mind when thinking about it. I will say too, like with the with the Clone Wars and its popularity, and like you were talking about, like this funnel of, of almost like refinement of what George Lucas is doing and the technology and the storytelling that he's implementing, and and also right 
as George Lucas is refining this technology, like Dave Filoni himself and, and the Lucasfilm animation department is growing and, you know, standing on their own two feet and Dave is pitching more stories like, you know, they're growing, too. So it's it's yeah, it's still George Lucas, but you're seeing more of these other people and their points of view in these stories the further along you get and you see that the adult demographic for people watching Clone Wars is, is increasing year after year. <laughs> it's not just young children anymore. It really is becoming a family affair. And then there's people like us who are like 17, 18 <laughs> watching the Clone Wars. Just us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's funny. I will yeah, say just because I have to be like a little bit petty about this is in the Star Wars Conquered the Universe book. There is this quote, which kind of made me mad, which I just I have to read for all of you. And they're talking about the end of the Clone Wars right before the series or right before the Disney purchase. And they're talking about the interesting thing about the viewership and how viewership had dipped between the series or between the seasons. And uh, the, remember, there was the weird thing about Clone Wars where they switched it in season five to Saturday mornings at 930 a.m. when before it had been on Friday nights. But the quote says, the show initially aired on Friday nights at 9 p.m., which won it a large adult audience, which was important. But as Filoni catered more and more to that audience with darker scripts and better animation, viewership declined from 3 million for series for the first season to 1.6 million for season four. You know, as if that's not a large number of people watching. For season five, Cartoon Network tried something that was either rad- was very radical. It moved Clone Wars to Saturday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Ratings barely moved. Still, the fifth season was number one in its time slot among boys aged 9 to 14, which was and remains Star Wars' core demographic. Despite attempts to bring in the girls with characters like Ahsoka and her fellow Padawan, Barriss Afi, which... That just made me so mad, honestly. <laughs> like, I was like, number one, I've been here the whole time watching from the get-go. I was there in 2008 for the movie in the theater, a 14-year-old girl who was probably not the demographic at all. Number two, they're like, we have a character like Ahsoka, this one singular woman. <laughs> and, and this and- random Padawan. <laughs> The audacity to mention Bears Offie is like, we have women characters, female characters, when Bears Offie cuts a square in the rock face in season two. And then we An iconic see- moment, honestly. <laughs> we see her in season two cutting that rock in a square shape. And then we don't see her again until season five. And this guy's like, why aren't girls watching? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> it, made, it made me so mad for on two fronts. Like, there are girls watching it. And also, if Ferris Offy is your second lead female character to point to, you've got a problem, sir. <laughs> I think another thing that that quote says to me is that Clone Wars had such a, a loyal audience at that point that we were yeah. willing to tolerate the the Saturday morning switch. And it, the numbers did not change at all. And it's funny because I think that when you trace it almost up to the Clone Wars' cancellation, there were people who kind of had dwindled, not watched the show, stopped watching the show, which I get. I think that happens with a lot of long-form shows. People just grow up and or they change their interests and all these things. Yeah. Um, but I think that 
the Clone Wars fandom was so loyal, so much like so loyal that they brought the show back. You know, I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of complication that can be put into the bringing back. And I think Caitlin and I will talk about it a little bit later in our series of animation. But I I think that it's it's to me when that looks like a bad number of like a drop off point to me, it just see, I see a refinement of the audience of people mm-hmm. who are diehard loyals who are, who had followed the show whenever they possibly can. Yeah. Well, that quote, that paragraph kind of paints it that having these more grown up storylines or like, it was like the better animation, it got better animation style and then less people watched it. It's like, isn't that a good thing? thing that it got better animation so I don't know it was just it's kind of framed weirdly because I think you're right like I think people just like naturally kind of stop watching things like you can only be committed to following so many things all the way through you yeah. know but the fact that it was still what did it say like 1.2 1.9 million yeah it's still a lot of people <laughs> for a Cartoon Network show I think is especially I don't know for like a sort of adult animated show that wasn't on like a adult um animation block like some like adult swim or something like that also i think is also quite interesting yeah but even though i mean it clone wars isn't an adult show it's yeah it's not young people so i mean that paragraph just kind of irks me in general tbh (laughs) i mean i get it and i think it's just like an advertiser speak honestly yeah i mean i agree the thing is i think I watch some of these things and I'm like, do I want my kid watching this? Not that I have children, but like, would I want my child to watch this? This is very dark. And like, we talk about all the time about how Cold Wars is very grown up and it is very dark, but it is still a show for young people. Yep. I mean, I think I would want all my kids to watch the Clone Wars, but I understand. Like, it, it is definitely a question mark of like... I mean, remember, see, was it season three, season four? Ahsoka beheads like five people from death watch at once yeah that's so great love that moment <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i think about like my nieces watching that at six years old and i'm like huh <laughs> that is okay, kind of dark <laughs> just to pivot a little bit i want to talk about how um the clone wars i think we'd be remiss to not mention that the Clone Wars, George Lucas really did see the rise of streaming platforms coming mm-hmm. and knew that the future of the Clone Wars would be a, almost a binge watch. I don't even think that was in, in the vocabulary at this point. But yeah. Yeah, but like the idea of a streaming platform where the Clone Wars would have a home, that it was easily accessible, that – because the idea of accessibility I think is comes up often in – in George Lucas's uh, creations, right? The idea that you can animate from your garage or we could make this in-house or we could tell the story for a child to understand even though it has larger concepts. And all this idea of accessibility, I think, was always in the forefront of George's mind even if we didn't really know like what Netflix was going to what that even looked like or right now we're in the age of the st- streaming service after streaming service yeah netflix and, is still handing out dvds <laughs> yeah exactly and i mean they still do that which is weird but i still think it's it's bizarre to 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 understand that george knew that 
the show would do well in a in a binge situation and it's just he's always ahead of it he just really is he's always ahead of it and i think that the rise of the clone wars also came after the clone wars came on netflix yeah and 100 percent, and had this sort of another reflective uh period and i think we're seeing this happen with avatar the last airbender right now of to a larger degree because way more people are at home right now (laughs) watching shows and things like that. But I think a lot of people that have found the Clone Wars have been in this binge way on Netflix, which is definitely not bad, especially since George kind of knew that that was coming. And then the nature in which these shows are created in these arc situations with three episode, four episode arcs, it makes it so much so that it's an easy watch altogether, an easy binge. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really always designed for that, even if we didn't understand that vernacular. Like you said, I think that when we were watching Mortis arc and ditching our own parties, it was like, dang, I wish we could just watch this whole arc. Like, I don't want to wait for the next week, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a friend from college who's going through Clone Wars for the first time right now, and I remember when she got to the midpoint of season three and I was like, you just need to like devote a night and just like finish season three altogether. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, don't wait in between episodes. Just, <laughs> just go. <laughs> and all this talk makes me want to like rewatch it all again. I she, I remember she texted me out of the blue. Like she was, Oh my God, the daughter died. And then a few seconds later, she was, I'm watching the clone wars. <laughs> just for content. <laughs> you were like i know i can tell it was like i don't need you to i don't need the context i know what you're talking about i knew this was coming (laughs) i remember i'd asked her i was like do you know anything about mortis and dathomir and she was like i forget what she asked me she was like oh aren't those like aren't those other characters or aren't those ships or something like that and i was like no (laughs) it's so much better (laughs) i'm so glad you have no uh idea (laughs) so if we could sort of wrap this up and say what we think the legacy of the clone wars was in like a sentence what would you say i don't know i think in one sentence the legacy of Clone Wars for me is the start of my fandom. And I wow. think 10 years later, that's important. <laughs> yeah. I like that you went the personal angle. I definitely was thinking more along the lines of the Clone Wars proved that an animated in an animation studio in within the confines of Lucasfilm could prove out even more content and that continued the the almost lifeblood of what Star Wars was throughout a period when Star Wars was was supposed to be over. And I think that that speaks to what you just said about the start of your fandom, because without it, where would we be? Mm -hmm. And I think so many fans agree because this was a time period where we all thought Star Wars was over. This came three years after Revenge of the Sith came out and Star Wars was winding down, but we all knew this was coming and we didn't really realize how, how much it was going to change so much and it, it it did i think that george lucas should be 
proud of this the thought of beginning an animated an animation studio within Lucasfilm and really, you know, believing in it and believing that it it was going to be I don't I swear I didn't intentionally say this, but the future of Star Wars. <laughs> and <laughs> and I really do think that the 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 future of continuous Star Wars storytelling is through the animated means just because it is so expansive. Mm. And George knew that. Dave knows that. And I think George still knows that. I shouldn't have used the past tense in that. I just I think that it's the legacy of the Clone Wars is a continue continuation of the Star Wars brand. That was a really long sentence. It was like a million sentences. Yeah. (laughs) You said in there that, you know, George should feel proud of all of this. And I think he does. I think it's telling that the only really public Star Wars event he's been to since the Disney purchase has been about the Clone Wars. (laughs) Yeah. So. And Solo. Yeah, yeah. But even still, that had Clone Wars origins inside of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I mean, to think that he did like a 20, what, what we saw was a 20-minute interview about Clone Wars Season 7, even though he wasn't like still making it himself. I think that speaks volumes. <laughs> totally. Anyway, I think that's going to wrap up this first episode, unless there's something I'm missing. <laughs> No, I think we're definitely forgetting things and we're just skimming the surface, but I'm excited to continue this timeline journey. Yeah, me too. So next episode, we will be talking about predominantly Rebels, but some other things that are, of course, going on in that time period. We'll be doing the the great switch from uh, 2012 with the Disney purchase, which brings with it a lot of stuff. (laughs) But I'm excited to be talking about Rebels and the other things that were going on in that time period. So thank you guys so much for joining us. And we hope you're looking forward to the second and third episodes of the series. If you would like to find us online to talk about it, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Crarity. We are also on our website, SkytalkersCom. You can email email us, find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, you can pause your um, podcast player of choice right now and go and do that. And that would be great. It really does help other people find our show, which we always enjoy meeting new people to talk about Star Wars with. So we would love it if you took a second to do that. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon. Yes, and I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Lindsay, Lola, Kat, Froppy, Dave, Nikki, Brendan, Anna, Emma, Lauren, Hannah, and Sean. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.